We are going to be back into our study of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be examining this morning as we continue to see what God has done through His people, the church. Now, one of the questions which really confronts historians is what are some of the reasons for why the early church had such an expansive growth right from the beginning? Uh, I mean, here you have a people group where is birthed out of the very place that Jesus was crucified and the resurrection occurred, but you have an early church who now enters into a Roman empire with a message about Jesus that the Romans did not want to hear. And not only that, you have a church that's entering into a culture and society that's actually antagonistic against the early church, even facing persecution for their beliefs. And so what's some of the reasons why we have this group expanding so powerfully throughout the world? I mean, here you're talking about a bunch of fishermen, tax collectors. You're you're not really dealing with people who have any status or power in society. And yet, this is one of the most profound movements. It is the most profound movement the world has ever known. And so, what birthed this movement? What was some of the things that occurred to make this happen? Well, I believe there's a, a supernatural answer to that question. And I believe that supernatural answer is found as we look at Acts chapter 2, where the power of the Spirit comes upon the life of the church. And, and so where, where are we in the story coming into Acts chapter 2? Well, we talk about Jesus who came to this earth, who lived and died and suffered. He was crucified, he was buried, he rose up again. And then as we looking post-resurrection, what was Jesus doing according to Acts 1 last week? He was going around for how many days? 40 days, and what was he doing? He was, he was preaching, clarifying what the kingdom of God is all about, and he was giving proof, evidence for his resurrection, showing himself to a bunch of eyewitnesses. And so he's, he's telling the disciples that they're going to continue the mission that he started, a mission of redemption and reconciliation, of healing and salvation for the world. And as the disciples get excited, what's the question that they ask Jesus? Does anyone remember? Lord? Yeah. Are, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? And, and what did Jesus tell them to do? He said, no, you guys need to wait... Why? Because something is coming, and what were they supposed to expect? The Holy Spirit. And he says, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you are going to be my witnesses basically throughout the world. And, and this is the, the posture then of the, the apostles and the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, I want to point out something beautiful. Because we see them waiting in a very specific manner. They're not just sitting around twiddling their thumbs saying, when's the Holy Spirit going to come? Acts 1 verses 14 tells us how they were waiting. And it says, all these, in other words, all the followers of Jesus, there's probably about 120 of them gathered together. And it says, with one accord, 
what were they doing? They devoted themselves to prayer. Isn't that beautiful? We see this early church gathering, and they're, they're devoted to this prayer. They're, they're waiting intentionally. They're waiting to hear from God. They're waiting with this unified vision of expectation and waiting for what God has next. So that's what we see them doing. Now, here's the wild event that occurs in chapter 2 then. And so let's, let's process some of this together. What, what happens next in the story? Chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Let's just pause there for a second. Uh, Pentecost, what was this? It was this Jewish holiday. It was this Jewish celebration. Um, Before this, there was a major holiday called Passover. When I say Passover, who knows what I'm talking about? Right? Jews still celebrate it today, the celebration of God's rescue in the Exodus. And there's this celebration called Passover, and Pentecost is simply 50 days later, right? It's Pente, 50 days later. And what this was was the celebration that was often surrounded by harvest. So it would be this feast of harvest. It would be celebrating the harvest that God had brought upon them. And so this is the context in which the Holy Spirit arrives. Now, what's the significance of it being a feast of harvest? What do we see at the end of this chapter? Does anyone know? We see this massive harvest. 3,000 people come to faith in one day from all around the world. And so there's this imagery. It's, it's symbolic, but it literally happened at the same time of this harvest coming into existence. Now, that's one aspect that we could talk about the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost. Another aspect is in the intertestamental period. In other words, the, the period before the Old Testament and the New Testament Uh, Pentecost began to really be associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, we're talking about the Ten Commandments where God instructed His people, this is how you should live, this is my character, who I am, and this is how you should live in light of it. And so that's another aspect of Pentecost that I, I think we often forget. So there's this aspect of, there's this symbolism of the coming of the law being bestowed on the people. And this really fulfills an Old Testament prophecy in Jeremiah 31, where God promises the people of the Old Testament that one day I'm going to do something. I am going to write the law where? On their hearts. So that they could follow me and submit to me and live the life I have called them to from their hearts. And so there's this two aspects that are going on here at Pentecost, what the Spirit's doing. The Spirit is bringing this harvest, and the Spirit is bringing God's purposes and God's will and God's law on the life of the people. Now, how does this happen? This is the wild part which we read in the story. This is the wild part of how it happened. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now here's 
Here's what's going on here. This is, this is pretty wild when we think about it. We, we see what two major elements here? Wind and fire, right? Now again, this happened, but there's also symbolism taking place. Something can be symbolic and happen at the same time. And what we see is the symbolism of wind and fire should draw us back to where in the story of Scripture? What are some places where we see wind and fire? Yeah, Moses in the burning bush. And what did that represent? It re represented the presence of God coming before them. Where else do we see it? Yeah, fire coming down to the altar, right? Yeah. The pillar of fire leading the people, right? Rescuing them. We, we see it at Mount Sinai too and giving of the law too, but there's this, there's this language then that should be wrapped in our mind of God's presence here. Because wind and fire through the, the narrative of the Old, Old Testament was, was always about God's presence and God's glory coming among the people. And so Luke, as he's recording the story in Acts, is, is making this important point as he's dealing with the evidences and eyewitnesses of who experiences. It's this point that this is God's personal temple presence. That's a powerful thought when we read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is all about how God's presence resided in a temple and yet now what we're reading in Acts 2 is that God has come to take up residence in a new temple. And what is the new temple? Us, the church, the people of God. God's very presence among us. And so now we see this beautiful imagery of, of these almost little mobile temples of God's presence. That's what the church is. We, we talked a lot about that this past summer in one of our series, but the, the church now becomes the, the mobile temple where God now dwells among his people. And so that's, that's the, the symbolic but also literal aspect of what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. And so what's the result then? The result of the presence of God among the church in a very supernatural, powerful way, becomes this. And I know that's small, but I'll read it for you. This is the implication, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the power of God coming down upon them in a personal force. And it says, and they began to speak in other tongues, in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And so what do we have here? We have this description of thousands of people who would have came to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. And they were coming from all over the regions, all over the land. Many spoke different languages, and yet they were coming back to this place. 
And here we hear them listening and understanding what the disciples and the apostles were teaching in their own language. And so they're amazed, they're astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, they shouldn't know our language. They shouldn't know how to speak to us. We shouldn't be understanding right now. We shouldn't, be know, we shouldn't know what's going on. And how is it that we hear, verse 8, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. What a beautiful vision this is, isn't it? And, and, and what I want to bring out from this passage is, is what do we see the Holy Spirit doing here? We see the Holy Spirit breaking down all these barriers to the gospel. That's what this entire passage is about, is, is God is breaking down barriers to the gospel. God is breaking down barriers to the mission of the church going forward. And so what are some barriers that we see here? We see language. What's another barrier? Culture. What's another barrier? Yeah, enemies or locations, tribal enemies, right? And so we see all these barriers to what's going on here. Now, here's the beautiful thing. When we even just look at location first and we realize that all these people gathered from all over these areas into Jerusalem, uh, he names 15 places here. And so we see places like modern-day Iran, which we've done a lot of work with. We see places like uh, modern-day Turkey. We see, obviously, North Africa and Egypt and, and Rome, uh, the Cretans, so Italy, and we see Arabs here. We see almost this massive description on the entire known map of the ancient world. And so this is another way of what's going on here with the Holy Spirit speaking to all these nations and all these people is saying he spoke to the entire world. The gospel is going out to the entire world. The good news of Jesus is going out to the entire world. So it's this beautiful breakdown of those barriers. Now, what about the, the aspect then of this? I think it's, it's, it's pretty beautiful just to, just to contemplate this for a second. Because when, when a church starts out, the question that obviously has to be asked is, is where are we going to meet? And what is the language we're going to speak? And so this is a breaking down of when the church began. Yes, it was in one location, but at the same time, it was what? It was the entire world. Like, that just blows my mind when you think about it. 
And even today, when we have this concept of, of sections of the church, we want to split up the North American church and the African church and the Arab church, and we want to make all these designations, from the very start, the church has been global. It's such a beautiful thing to think about, isn't it? It's even more profound when we look at another barrier, language. And so we have this other barrier of People gathering in Jerusalem, but no one knew how to communicate with one another. Uh, does anyone else, have you ever been to overseas and you've traveled around? And that's probably one of your biggest frustrations, right, is you don't know the local language. How do I communicate this? How do I get around? How do I even figure out basic information? You can't do any of this. And the beautiful thing about this is what the Holy Spirit does is he breaks down all the language barriers. And I think something that's beautiful for us to acknowledge here is, is on the first day of Jesus' church having this massive worship service so, service, so to say, of Pentecost, God refused to have one language represented. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God refused to have one language or one culture to minister in. See, if the, if, if the apostles and the disciples, if they were speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic and Greek, there, there would have been this centralized um, priority to those cultures and languages, right? And, and yet what we see right off the bat is that God is saying the gospel isn't just for one people group, it is for everyone. It's for the world. Amen, church? Like, this is absolutely mind-blowing and beautiful. The, the Lord on Pentecost is, is telling us that the, the desire of God and the people of God is, is not just monocultural. It's every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And this, this first worship gathering is multilingual. It's multicultural. It's to the extreme. That's absolutely beautiful. And so another aspect of that is many, many commentators have pointed out that the connection here too is that in Genesis 10, we see the story of, of the Tower of Babel. Do you guys know what that story is? In other words, it's the story of Scripture where people had been speaking one language and then because of humanity's desire to have control and power, um, they began to... Um, segregate and, and build this tower where they would rule and reign, and all that did is bring fracture and segregation to between all these peoples and turning into languages, and all these various languages that we have as a result of people's desire to segregate from one another. And, and what we see in this passage is, you know what, even though humanity created all this racial and, and cultural alienation, what does God do? He unites. He restores. He, he, again, he's breaking down all these barriers through the name of Jesus. And, and so God is overcoming the, the sinfulness of humanity and the segregation that we cause and bringing unity under the name of Jesus. It's absolutely beautiful. And this even is a foreshadowing of how the story ends when we read in Revelation uh, chapter 7, where it says the kingdom of God 
God's people, what are we going to see? We're going to see people from where? Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation singing the praises of God together. That's what we long for. That's what we were created for. That's what we exist for as the people of God. And so what do we see as a result here? Verse 12 then. We see a result of this this beautiful worship gathering of all these tongues understanding their own language, the good news of Jesus. And then we read something. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mockingly said, They are filled with new wine. In other words, what are they? They're drunk, right? It's probably a pretty wild event, so I'm sure that would be an easy assumption. But, but here's what we see that I think is crucial for us to understand, even as the church, is, is what we see here is probably one of the most beautiful worship gatherings the church has ever known to this day. We'll have that again in the fruition of the new heavens and earth, but this is an absolutely amazing event. And it draws people to ask and question, well, what's going on here? Who is this God? What is he doing among his people? Why is it happening? And, and we see the results of thousands of people coming to faith right off the start. But at the same time, we see people rejecting. We see people saying, the church is crazy. They're out of control. I'm not interested. This doesn't make sense. There has to be another explanation. They have to be drunk. And so Peter, at the beginning of his sermon, he responds to this, and he's like, it's only 9 a.m., right? These people can't be drunk. Well, that might have been good logic there. Maybe doesn't fit in our context today, right? Some people still have their morning beers and stuff. And so Peter's making this defense that, no, they are not drunk, but they are filled with the power of the Spirit. And being filled, as Peter goes on to argue in his sermon, he's saying being filled with the Spirit of God and prophesying God's Word it isn't just a calling for a select few anymore. Because in the Old Testament, who, who would we see be people who were proclaimers of the Word? Who would be the p- people who would prophesy God's Word? The prophets and priests, Right? And what we see Peter's defending in a few verses later after this one, he's saying these people aren't drunk, they're filled with the power of the Spirit, and this was prophesied by the prophet Joel, and these people are simply functioning as priests and prophets. Now, what's beautiful about that? The Old Testament, we have this description of people with priests and prophets. But what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit changes the church in the sense now the church becomes a people of prophets and priests. Amen? What what does that change for how we identify ourselves? And that means each and every one of us who is empowered with the Holy Spirit, we begin to speak and function as priests and prophets. It's no longer a select few, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit, it is now everyone who is empowered by God. That's another beautiful reality, isn't it? 
And, and this is what Jesus is telling the disciples. He's saying, you guys want to go on a mission now, but you need to wait because you can't do it without the power of the Spirit to accomplish it in your life. And so what do we, what do we see from this passage? We, we see this power getting out, the, the witness of the apostles going with power, and we see the Holy Spirit breaking down all these barriers, breaking down the language, uh, breaking down language, breaking down geography, breaking down location. He's breaking down all these barriers to the gospel so the mission of God can go forth and people would know the good news of Jesus. That's how the early church starts. It's not, not the same vision that we should have today. Amen. We continue that mission. We're part of that mission. We have to realize that we, in God's story, are not just spectators. We are participants. Amen? So we, we can't read this historically and not see our connection to it as the church today. We have to live in light of that reality. We have to live in light of that reality. And so let me, let me close with one more thought. One more thought. When, when we look at Acts 2, so often we get distracted with the conversation of, of speaking in tongues and all that kind of stuff. We're, we're talking about languages in this context. There's other contexts to talk about that. But the main premise we see in this passage is what God is doing to break down barriers for the gospel. And how he empowers the church for that to happen. And I want us just to ask the question, well, what are the barriers that need to be broken down that we see? Not just in our lives, but in our community. And one thing that I was thinking of has to do with, with how the apostles and the early followers of Jesus would have been wrestling with this. And it's shown in the question that they asked Jesus. They asked Jesus, well, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which means, who did they think the gospel was for? For themselves. And what you saw happen in that historical context was, was all these boundaries that were put in place by the people of God, which said, we are in, we are the people of God, put a box around us, and everyone outside the box is out, so to say. And, and there's, there's some reality to that statement. There's concepts and scriptures that speak about being in the kingdom and out of the kingdom. Yet at the same time, there's this language of God is our creator, which makes all of humanity part of his family, so to say. We are all in Adam in many senses. And I think that when we talk about barriers to the gospel, one thing we have to keep in mind is how easy it is for us to fall back into the language that the apostles used in a mistaken way. Because Acts 2 would have shocked them. Because they were realized and confronted with the fact, wait, there are people outside of our box that are part of the kingdom of God just as much as we are. And I think at times what we do as, as the church as well is we, we put this boundary around us and, and there, there is boundaries to be made, but at the same time we forget that there's people out in our community right now that are part of the people of God, that have not yet been restored to God. 
And so when we talk about the language of family relationship as well, when we realize that some of the passages of Scripture that talk about God as the Father of all humanity, we need to realize that we are like everyone else in the family, but what do we have with the Father? We have a restored relationship. We have a restored relationship with the Father. And so when we look at our neighbor, we, we need to look at them like a brother or sister that has a, a strained relationship with dad, that needs restoration. See, the Israels would have looked to their neighbors and said, you guys are outside of the family. You have no hope of being in the family. You guys are ostracized and rejected. Were they wrong for that? 100%. God over and over again is saying, no, I'm for the nations. I'm for restoring the world, every tongue, every tribe. And so when we have this mentality that, wait, there's people that need to be restored beyond us, outside these four walls that desperately need to find a restored relationship with their father, that needs to know that there is a father who loves them and desires to restore them into the family and for them to receive the adoption that is theirs. In Christ. I mean, there's a day coming where we will know those who have been reconciled to the Father. But right here, right now, do we know? We don't know. We have no concept of it. We, we don't know who's received the adoption of the family who might have the potential to give their life to Christ. And for us to realize that we live here, right here, right now, with a God-ordained purpose. I mean, Jesus told the, the apostles to wait and the disciples to wait because the power of the Spirit was going to come upon them. And they were waiting with this expectation because they knew that they were there for a purpose and that God was going to do something profound in them. Do you see your life in the same manner? Do you see where you live and what you're doing as the purposes of God to bring restoration to the lives of others through you? We have to see that. We have to realize that. God, there, there's going to be people that are restored to the Father. There's going to be barriers that are broken down to the gospel by the Spirit, and God is going to use us to make that happen. Amen? That is the only hope of the mission of God moving forward. That's how it happened in the early church, and that's how it's happening today. And so my prayer for us is that we would first ourselves realize some of the, the barriers that we have before us that keep us from accomplishing what God is going to do in mighty, powerful ways through the Holy Spirit. And so let me, let me pray to that extent. Uh, gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, first of all, we thank you that you are a God for all people, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all cultures. Lord, what a beautiful description of the church we have in Acts 2. And so, Lord, I pray that we today would live out of that reality that all the, the boundaries and barriers that we want to place between ourselves and others would just be eradicated when your spirit empowers us. That we would see so many people who need restoration to the family of God, who need to be restored to their father, who need to receive the adoption that is theirs in Christ into the family. 
And so we pray that we would be a church that goes out with love and compassion and a gospel message of, of healing and freedom and reconciliation and that we as the many temples of your spirit would take your powerful presence wherever we go. And so convict us where we need to be convicted. Guide us where we need to be guided. Speak through us where we don't know what to say. You empower us for the task. You do not leave us in our own power, our own wisdom, our own might, but simply your power and your wisdom and your might. May we live out of that in every day of our existence. For your glory we pray. Amen.